turn with me to Ezra chapter 9, if you're using a pew Bible, pages 647 and continuing on to 648. Ezra chapter 9, pages 647, continuing on to 648. It's on your large print sheets as well. Ezra, the ninth chapter. My friends, this is the Word of God from Ezra, chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters, wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. Because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting. Having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. 
which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we begin looking at Ezra chapter 9 as we continue our study of this book of the Old Testament. In this chapter we see that Ezra prays to God for the people's forgiveness. Ezra prays to God for the people's forgiveness. Now we've already noticed the setting of this book of Ezra, the first six chapters, speaking of the rebuilding of temple, that's Act 1. And now we're in Act 2, chapters 7 through 10, which have to do with the reform of religion, the reformation of religion. So the the temple eventually got rebuilt, but there were problems. There was Pro, there, there were problems in terms of Jerusalem, in terms of the worship, in terms of the people of God. And so now we have the reform of religion, chapters 7 through 10. Chapters 7 and 8, as we talked about, uh, form two complementary chapters, both of which speak of the return of Ezra and the people he brought with him back into the land. Ezra truly is a leader, calling out all aboard. He is thus viewed as a dynamic leader, we might say a charismatic leader, by those exiles who had already returned some years before. And so this is going to be a key as we look at chapter 9 today, in terms of the people turning to Ezra to help with this problem. Let me pause here just for a second and say that there is a great danger or temptation in dealing with this text. One, one extreme to avoid is to treat it so objectively, we might even say academically, as not to apply personally. That's one thing we have to, obviously we want to be careful in our explanation, we want to be thorough in our explanation and so forth, but at the same time, we don't want to avoid personal application. 
There must be, therefore, a balance in the presentation of Scripture. We must always have a view towards the context and the setting. And so we deal with that. We explain this is what this, what this chapter is all about in context. We talk about the history of redemption. We talk about the idea that God has revealed himself in history. And so he has given us his word, but it, it was in terms of a certain historical context. But we must always, at the same time, strive to make personal application. We must not forget that. Now there's a question as to what was going on uh, for these four months between the arrival of Ezra and his sorrow, his lamentation over this sin. If you look at chapter 10 of Ezra in verse 9, you see it talks about the ninth month. Well, they arrived back in the fifth month. So why would Ezra not have known about this sin, this problem that has been related to him? Well, it's quite possible that Ezra was busy with a lot of different things. Uh, you look at Nehemiah chapter 8, and you see his ministry of the word as he preaches, proclaims the word. Also, you, if you look at our text for today, verse 1, you see this was an official report. And so maybe, maybe he had some knowledge of something going on there, perhaps, but this is an official report. We could say this was a set of charges that were being brought. It's one thing just to know out in society something's going on, but when you bring it to court in an official way, then, of course, it gets the attention of those court officials. And Ezra, of course, was busy reporting to the Persian officials back in Persia, but it's also possible that he just did not know about this. So today now, we look at the problem. Look at the problem. And look. notice then the setting, first of all. It says, after these things, or when these things were done. What were those things? It was the people coming back into the land. It was the people making that trek, making that journey back into the land, back into Jerusalem, and also presenting all of the gold and the silver and all those other things, making sure there was a a strict accounting for all those matters. It was after those things that what happened? The princess, the leaders, came to Ezra. Now, these were the leaders. They went to Ezra. They knew, they knew as leaders that they had a certain responsibility to the covenant community, or we could say to the church we apply it today. They probably did not feel, however, that they had enough wisdom or clout, we might say, to force a showdown over this issue. Let me pause just a moment and say that it is a good thing when a crime has been committed or when a sin has been committed in church context to report it. That's a valuable thing. It's a it is a necessary thing. But not everyone is mature enough or equipped enough to handle every situation. And so even though these were the leaders, they were somewhat backward, you could say, 
in dealing with this. And so now they're bringing this official report to this leader, Ezra, in order to deal with it. So what was the problem? What was the sin? It was, first of all, a matter of the pollution, the pollution. That is to say that they, that the people of God were not separated from the peoples of the land. Non-separation. Now notice, as you look here at verse 1, notice what we might call the, the traditional nations that were to be rejected. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. Those were people in Canaan. Remember what God said, that those people were to be wiped out. You remember that? As the, people of, as the people of Israel, as the children of Israel, came into the promised land. They were not to be tolerated. Of course, the people of God, the Israelites, did not fully follow that, did they? And so you still had Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, and so forth. But then you notice you have these additional nations, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians. And so you have these other ones as well. And so what does this tell us then? It shows to us something very important, and that is that the basic prohibition, the basic prohibition, which was that of, the separ- of, of not being separated from the peoples of this world, That was the basic prohibition. That basic prohibition that had been stated with regard to certain nations, some of them extinct, was being applied more broadly. And so, in other words, that was the ancient thing, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and so forth. But not only that, it's also the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians. Any and all of these wicked peoples, you see, were to be rejected and were to be shunned, if you will. Were not the children of Israel, were not to intermarry with them. And that leads us then to the idea of intermarriage. They took, as we see here, they took some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Now this is in contrast to what we read today from Deuteronomy chapter 7. So I call your attention to that again, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them, You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. And so this is a clear violation of this prohibition of this intermarriage of marrying with those who were far apart from the true and the living God. And so the Israelites then, 
these Jewish people were guilty of disobeying God's explicit command. And not only were they guilty of it, but they involved their families in this, their children, you see. So it wasn't just that they did it, but it's that they also gave their, they also in, involved their sons and their own daughters in this. Their children saw the disobedience by these leaders and others and the distrust of God's power as they were led by this wicked policy. And so their own children were given in these marriages. As a result of that, the holy seed became intermingled. Again, let us be clear here, the fundamental concern here is not a racial or ethnic issue. That's not the issue here. Rather, it was a concern for purity or of religion. The Israelites had profaned their special place and favor. They had exposed themselves and their children to the peril of idolatry. And they would have thus played into the hands of what we call syncretism, that is to say, a mixture of religion. There's a word called synthetic. You all know what synthetic material is? You take one one bit of cloth, one, one thread, and then you have another one, and you weave them together, right? That's synthetic. Well, in a sense, that's what you have in terms of these religions. The syncretism, the synthetic religion, if you will, and this would have played into the hands of those who would say things like, well, yes, we worship Yahweh, but why can't we worship these other gods as well? Now notice then the abominations. Not only is it non-separation, pollution, but it also involves the abominations. Verse 1, with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and so forth. That abomination is that which is abhorrent, that which is distasteful, that which nauseates us perhaps. This has to do particularly, as a particular reference, to the pagan conception of marriage, multiplying wives, polygamy, and doing so for political and economic advantage. But it also refers to the fact, it also refers to the fact that God's people would be exposed to other sins by means of this intermarriage. So what are some of these abominations? What are some of these abominable practices of these pagan nations? Well, first of all, false worship. False worship. In other words, saying, again, saying it's okay to worship these other gods, or it's okay to worship in a way that has not been prescribed. Today, then, we would apply it not only in terms of synthetic religion, syncretistic religion, but also in terms of entertainment masquerading as worship. But there were other things as well, namely the sacrifice of children. Look with me at Psalm 106, the 106th Psalm. Psalm 106. 
Look at verse. Look at verse uh, thirty, uh, verse twenty-eight. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor, false god, and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. The plague broke out among them. Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. That was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. But then look at verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Again, false worship, but where does it lead to? They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Well, you see then, not only is there the false worship, but even the sacrifice of children. Do we have such things in our society today? Yes, my friends, we have abortion, do we not? And even within the professing church, we find the practice of abortion more often than we probably want to recognize. But then, as I mentioned just as I read just a second ago, not only defiled by their own works, they played the harlot by their own deeds, which not only is a reference to the false worship, but of course is also a reference to perverted sexual practices. And today, my friends, do we have homosexuality and other such things? Yes, we do. And again, even in churches, we see examples of that today. And so, this is the problem. This is what is going on here. This is why there was such concern, Ezra. This, let me, let us tell you what is happening. Yes, you've come back to the land, which is great. But all is not right here in the promised land. And so we find then the people, the people of Israel, as mentioned here, the people of Israel, uh, the leaders, the priests and Levites, those who were te to teach and practice law, the princes and rulers, those who should set an example, they were all involved in this. They were all involved. Verse 1, the priests and Levites. Verse 2, the leaders and rulers. The leaders, the ones who should have set an example. The ones who should have known better. My friends, some sins are worse than others. And one of the reasons why a sin might be worse than another sin is when a leader commits it. So I have two points of application today. The first is this. Maintain separation from the world. Maintain separation from the world. 
we are to separate, and here I'm not saying geographically, but ethically, in terms of our ethics, in terms of our practices, from the practices of the world. We are to be a holy people set apart for God. And when we continue in worldly, fleshly, sinful practices, we deny our calling. And this is a point to be made particularly with regard to godly companions rather than ungodly ones. And indeed, especially when it comes to marriage partners. Not with, the scripture is clear. Marry only in the Lord. And more than that, let me also say, marry only someone who shares your same basic theological beliefs as well. Make sure that person is not going to bring you down, but is going to encourage you in terms of your walk. And so maintain separation from the world, from the worldly practices, the worldly ways of thinking that we, we find, we hear those siren calls, those, those temptations all around us. Maintain separation from the world. Number two, be warned be warned regarding sin and its seriousness. Be warned. Sin is a serious matter. It is an affront to God. And even one sin is enough to separate you from God eternally. We must not underestimate its seriousness, its gravity. The gravity of Israel's sin was not by Ezra and must not be by us minimized, listen to me carefully, it must not be minimized, downplayed, by too ready of an appeal to divine favor which would cheapen grace. Guilt can be a good thing in the sense that it enables you to feel your sin. And the law, therefore, must be preached in order that we recognize more and more how we are displeasing to God. So one person has put it this way. Let me just read this. It is no doubt a weakness of modern spirituality that it regards a real fear of God's wrath, which does not immediately lead to assurance of God's forgiveness, as somewhat fanatical. Okay, let me, let me repeat that again. It's a weakness of modern spirituality today that it regards a real fear of God's wrath. So we ought to be afraid of God's wrath. We ought to be afraid of that. But that regards a real fear of God's wrath, which does not immediately lead to assurance of God's forgiveness as somewhat fanatical. In other words, we need to think about these things. We need to consider them. We need to examine ourselves. And so we must take these matters seriously. My friends, confession and repentance are necessary. Godly sorrow is what leads to repentance. But I finally would remind you again, 
as we have seen already in the book of Ezra, the appeal to the sacrifices, because at the end of the day, that's how we are accepted. We're not accepted because of our sincerity. We're not accepted because of how great we are. Certainly not. My friends, we are accepted only because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to whom all those Old Testament sacrifices, all those animal sacrifices pointed. And so my friends, as I call you to repentance today, I call you to faith, to faith in Jesus. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to faith. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we pray that this message would penetrate our hearts. Lord, we, in many ways, are so dull and dead in our understanding and, Lord, in our desires. But, Father, a passage like this can be taken by thy Holy Spirit and bring us to life. And so we ask, O God, that for each one here, Lord, Lord Jesus, thou dost see the hearts of each one. We pray that thy spirit, Lord Jesus, would come and would penetrate each heart, bring about repentance and godly sorrow upon reflection, and then a ready willingness to follow thee. So accomplish those things. Oh, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray.